Hello, and welcome back to Working for the Word. My name is Andrew Case, and this is where you get a close look at what goes on in the background of a Bible translation project. We also look at wider issues in the world of Bible translation and things that consultants need to know before they get into checking a Bible translation. So, thanks so much for joining us, and I'm actually talking to you from Villablino, Spain. We are locked down because of the virus, and Europe is now considered the epicenter of the pandemic. So, it has gotten a little serious here, but we're okay. And when you're not allowed to go outside, why not just record a podcast, right? So here we are, and we want to talk about Judges chapter 5. We're going to get back into Judges a little bit. And in this chapter, we have verse 11, which says in the ESV, To the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Now, when you read this in one translation, you don't get a sense for how varied the translations are for this verse. Let's give you some examples. The KJV says, for the first part, they that are delivered from the noise of archers in the places of drawing water. So remember the ESV said, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. KJV says, they that are delivered from the noise of archers in the places of drawing water. NASB says, at the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places. NET says, hear the sound of those who divide the sheep among the watering places. NIV says, the voice of the singers at the watering places. NLT says, listen to the village musicians gathering at the watering holes. And then Spanish versions have many of the same variants. So what do we do with this? Let me read to you a little bit from the translator's guide from UBS, which is really interesting. It says, so they're commenting on the NIV translation, which says, to the sound of the musicians at the watering places. They say, there are serious problems of interpretation here, especially since the meaning of the Hebrew word rendered musicians is uncertain. To the sound is literally from the voice. The previous verse ends with an imperative verb meaning ponder. Even though many English versions put this imperative at the beginning of the verse, others want to put it at the end of that verse to continue the sentence here. For naturalness, several versions add a similar verb to begin this verse. For example, NET begins with hear the sound. The Hebrew word translated musicians comes from a root that has various meanings, but HOTTP, which is the Hebrew Old Testament text project, gives an A rating to the meaning dividers or distributors. Now, before we get further into this, I should probably explain to you what the HOTTP is for those who are not familiar with it. The Hebrew Old Testament text project is a massive undertaking that was spearheaded by Eugene Nida of the United Bible Societies, and he formed this back in 1969. So basically, this was formed 
to provide translators with the most critically responsible text. That means that they wanted translators to have access to all the biggest advances in knowledge about the ancient manuscript witnesses to the Old Testament. So in the mid 20th century, the most recent Western translations varied widely in how they handled text critical problems. These translations were often consulted by UBS translators or others in the field. And the variations in the Western translations like you guys just heard in the ones that I, I listed off for Judges 5 were therefore unsystematically influencing the translations sponsored by the Bible societies and others. So the field had yet to thoroughly and systematically assess the text critical impact of the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. And that was an important issue that the KJV and other translations had not dealt with. So if you're a translator and you're sitting there and you're looking at all these different translations to try to get to the bottom of these harder texts that you may not have full mastery of because of the Hebrew or even if you're an expert in Hebrew, there's still variations there that you don't know how to grapple with or obscure words or variations in the manuscripts. They wanted something to help those people and streamline the process and make it more systematically and consistently available. So how did they do this? John A. Thompson of the American Bible Society provided a list of the passages that are most difficult for translators. And then Eugene Nida invited six scholars to work on the project. So you can look those up online, read about them, all that. The committee met annually and considered in total almost 6,000 of the most difficult Old Testament text critical problems. That would actually be a really cool podcast for someone to go through each of the 6,000 text critical problems and talk through them with people. That would, that would be really cool. Maybe I'll do that someday. <laughs> but one of the main guys involved in this project was a guy named Bartelemy. And his findings in the pre-critical literature were basically new to modern textual criticism. And it became clear that the medieval exegetes' knowledge of Hebrew grammar and syntax derived from their thorough acquaintance with Arabic grammar and syntax and was superior to modern grammars of Hebrew, which are largely based on the structures of classical languages. During the course of their study, the committee came to realize that ancient tridents, both scribes and translators, were less prone to scribal errors than the field had thought previously. So we're talking about a lot of the earlier textual criticism that came out of Germany in the 19th and 20th centuries. This was precisely because in the early history of transmission of the text, there was more freedom than scholarship had realized to alter the text slightly, to make it understandable to the communities the ancient tridents served. These then were not errors in the usual sense, but purposeful changes done in service to the communities that accepted the text as canonical or authoritative.
So that basically means that these people were opening up new perspectives and gaining new ground that had previously either been forgotten or misunderstood. But at the same time, they were grappling with new discoveries in archaeology. So these guys were basically doing the hard detective work for everyone else to get to the bottom of what was the most authoritative text and putting together the evidence to figure that out. Now, they wrote up an interim report, which is not the final report, that presents only the bare bones of the work. And uh, they were going to give a final or scientific report in several volumes that has all the evidence and reasons for the committee's decisions to be thoroughly presented. But that was never fully realized. A lot of it was, but it only came out in French. We do have the interim report that was totally published, but as I said, it is very abridged. So it provides, at least we have this, it provides translators with the committee's decisions and a formal translation of the text preferred by the committee. And it's in English, which is great. So once again, these manuals provide translators with a really helpful guide to making better, more informed decisions when they're translating, instead of just following whatever version suits their theology, for example. We'll have to talk more about textual criticism in later episodes, but as somebody who's done a whole lot of it, I can tell you that it is a very tedious job. It is something that is time-consuming and is not something that a translator has time to grapple with in the midst of all the other tasks and complexities of his work. So this was a huge service to the world of Bible translation. So all that was basically to get you up to speed on what the HOTTP, the Hebrew Old Testament Text Project, is that is mentioned here in the UBS commentary on this verse in Judges 5.11. So continuing, they say, In this context, scholars agree that the word for musicians, translated here musicians, the word most likely refers to those who carry or distribute water to animals. Versions give divergent renderings here. For example, singers, harpers, crowds, but the CEV seems most correct with those who carry water. This rendering makes good sense in the context of watering places. This reference to people of lower status may be parallel to those obliged to walk. People of all social ranks, even the lowest, take part in praising Yahweh for his victories. So what did the translators on the team I'm working with in Mexico do with this? Well, their first translation of this basically communicated this issue of those who give water or who give water to drink to the cows. That's what they said. And so I explained to them, you know, this is an image of the humble people in contrast to verse 10, where we have these rich people. Let me read to you verse 10 before we continue on. Let's see here. It says, Tell of it, you who ride on white 
donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. So here you have, you know, obviously people who are wealthy, higher up, and white donkeys is one of the ways that that is communicated in the Old Testament culture, as well as sitting on rich carpets, obviously. So you have people should praise the higher up people, the rich people, and then next verse, the people who are humble, the people who work in the watering places. So what they had chosen to do in verse 10 was to translate the meaning. So they took a little bit of the poetic part out of it, but they really didn't have an equivalent idiom or kind of cultural representation of rich people that would fit in that place. So they had talked about the people who are wealthy, the the people who are important. And so I said, if you're going to do that in verse 10, then you should be consistent and do that in verse 11. So what they needed to do was translate the meaning, you know, the, the humble, simple people there. So they agreed, and that's what they did. So I, I basically gave them two options. I said, if you're going to do this here, you're going to talk about those who give water to the cows here, then in verse 10, you ought to have an image there that corresponds in contrast instead of just translating the meaning. So pick one and be consistent, basically. So they did, and so they ended up with translating it as simple people. Now, I can hear a lot of people criticizing that translation, but, um, (laughs) you know, we have the KJV, which talks about archers, and that's way farther away from what's going on in this context, and uh, even musicians, you know, I mean, it's all over the map, so if you pick something like this, I think you're actually being closer and more faithful to the context, and what the committee of the Hebrew Old Testament text project has suggested based on all of their findings. As someone once said, translation is like kissing your bride through a veil, and you're going to lose some of the poetry. (laughs) You're going to lose some of the beauty. You're going to lose a lot of things. It's, It's always inevitable, and that is one thing that we have to grapple with in the world of translation. And it is something that people who are monolingual have a hard time reconciling themselves to. People who are monolingual and have only read the English Bible growing up have no idea how complex the transfer between languages is. And so it's easier for them to get on a high horse and go on a rampage against people who would dare to translate things in a slightly different way. So just a word of caution for those of you who may be listening and you are monolingual. Have a little humility and if you know somebody who is monolingual and is in this kind of boat, um, it's, it's a good call for humility 
until you've learned another language well enough to understand the complexities of transfer between languages you don't really have any leg to stand on in critiquing translations or having an opinion about translations that said even those who have a mastery of two three languages if those languages are very similar within the same Indo-European family for example let's say you know French and Spanish and English well you're also going to have to approach translation with a bit of humility there because translation between those languages is obviously going to be a lot simpler because they are related because they have cross-pollinated so much the translation issues that come up with those languages and because of their cultural background being so similar are going to be slight in comparison to trying to translate for example between English and Japanese or Chinese and so you know you you have to have a little humility there as well until you really see some of these huge language gaps you know for instance I studied a Bantu language in Equatorial Guinea called Fang which has really no relation to English it has a few English loan words but it's a tonal language it uses a noun class system I mean even the noun class system itself puts this language in a crazy separate category from Indo-European languages that will mess with your mind if you get into it deep enough and that's when you really start to see the complexity and the challenge the immense challenge of getting concepts communicated between languages so anyway that little verse took a lot longer than I thought but it gives you a window into some of the considerations that go into just one phrase of a verse even and this is why translation takes a long time this is why it's expensive this is why we have thousands of languages still without any translation and even more thousands without any Old Testament translation one more thing to keep in mind is that these translations are first translations they're not considered final translations and so people sometimes put the stakes super high for Bible translation and saying well you've got to get everything perfect the first time through and that's simply not the case the Septuagint did not do that that was the first translation of the Bible in history and it did not get everything perfect it got a lot of things horribly wrong actually and so when we're talking about a first draft or the first go on something then there's room to grow there's room to make it better to make it more beautiful to make it more artistic there's room for them to make it more accurate in the future we talk about that in English translations you know the the KJV had a lot of room to grow and become more accurate in certain ways so that's uh, one thing that we have to keep in mind in this whole discussion is these translators are doing their best we're all doing our best to make a first translation not a final translation that will be subject to revisions in the future and those people 
may or may not do a revision in the future. They may not have the resources or the time to do something like that, but it's at least an open option for them. And that's what we encourage them to do because their language is going to change as well. Their language is going to need to be updated. Every language evolves. Every language has words that become obsolete or that change in meaning over time. Every language has grammatical issues that shift over time. And we then need to update our translations to reflect those so that we can communicate to future generations, right? And that's what we've done with NIV and others. NLT, another great example of trying to communicate in the ways that English communicates today and not 300 years ago. Anyway, once again, as always, I want to thank you so much for listening. Here at Working for the Word, we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. And I sincerely hope that this podcast is helping you treasure the Bible, go deeper into it, and become more like the man of Psalm 1.